When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the chick that made us who we are. My name is Karen Adamhu and I'm an author and a bass player who died in Vietnam. Joining me is writer and a man with eyes so blue they named contact lenses after him, Tom McInnes. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Today we're talking about uh, Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reads. Taylor Jenkins Reads, um, a book that I made you read. Yes, you did. And I'm glad <laughs> that you did because it has opened a small but sort of, I, th- I, I, I think, um, worth very real door. Door, yes. yes. Um, so what happened was you're one of my favorite people in the world to talk about books with, um, but you and you read like more fiction than any man I know, mm. which I didn't think that men could do that anymore because they don't. We just like lost that power through lack of use. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, um, Gavin, the man who lives in this house, reads one book a year, and it's mostly about whaling vessels. Mm-hmm. Um, but you read all the fucking time and you also read women but what you don't read that often is women's commercial fiction or chiclet or whatever you want to call it and what we do on this podcast and so I wanted to have you on the podcast but you hadn't really read anything that fit the brief mm-hmm. and so this book was like it was the huge it was like the woman sun lounger book of last year it's been requested on this podcast lots of times and so I said okay you're into music you write music you're one of my favourite musical friends um, and favorite artists, I think, even though <laughs> even though all your music exists on SoundCloud is on a private link and is given only to me, <laughs> <laughs> which may have something to do with what why you uh, why you feel it speaks to you because yeah. it literally does. <laughs> yeah, it is like my only fans of your of your brain. It's yeah. all, but oh, no nudity, all just similes about yeah, growing just, up in Bedford. Just naked emotion. <laughs> naked emotion, exactly. Um, so what, like, given that this book was an assignment, mm-hmm. what is your sort of, your sort of broad take on it so far? Um, so yes, as you, as you said, I don't, not only have I not really read much, I don't know what the, what term do we go with these days? Chicklet? Chicklet or commercial women's fiction. Yeah. I'll go with commercial women's fiction. Yeah. I don't read much commercial women's mm-hmm. fiction. Uh, in fact, I kind of avoided it, not because, just because I, I felt that, like, reading a book is actually a bit of an undertaking when there, or it's a bit of, it's a bit of a commitment when there's so much less, there's there's so much easier stuff out there that you can fill, fill your time with. So I always felt that, like, I wanted to maximise or, like, optimise, optimise my time by reading books that I felt had some kind of real cultural intellectual cachet you know that bullshit yeah but what's interesting though is that like you have we've talked about this before you have this sort of like conversion metric in your head where you will you will read like any old tosh by any man as long as it's about like detectives and like Mm -hmm. people being murdered and found under bridges and stuff and like detectives getting drunk together but if it's but like if you're going to read a woman, she basically has to be a genius, or me. Yeah, well, that's exactly that. That that that's very true. Like my two criteria generally for 
re, uh, for, for choosing a book are either like, one, this is in the Western canon, yeah. I will read it, or two, the blurb talks about sparse... Muscular prose. Muscular prose that yeah. expose the brutal nature of the Old West or gold prospecting or whaling or <laughs> or the seedy underbelly of Los Angeles in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right. Oh, I could do with some of that more oh. underbelly. I could shave yeah. off some of that belly. <laughs> um, yeah, and that was definitely, I think when we first became friends like 10 years ago, um, Jesus, uh, <laughs> that was the, the books that we were always talking about was like, Paris in the 20s, the great drunk men of the earlier 20th yeah. century. And uh, I've gone on a bit of a journey with my reading. And I'm, this is me trying to take you on that journey with me. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to do a brief plot summary of Daisy Jones and the Six. And I, and I really do mean very brief because I think a lot of this, kind of this book is like in the personal sort of dynamics of the people. So I would just say that Daisy Jones and the Six is a fictional oral history about your favourite 70s rock band that never existed. While the main narrative focuses on the relationship between the two lead singers, Billy and Daisy Jones, the book is an encapsulation of life, drugs, partying, and art on the Sunset Strip in the 1970s. And that's all I really feel like I have to get into, because otherwise, there's a real zoomed out version of this book you can talk about, which is like, it's about music in the 70s. But then once you kind of zoom in, it's like, in many ways, the plot can be quite tedious. It's Mm -hmm. like a lot of like... Well, Daisy wanted to sing this, but I didn't want her to. And in the end, we found a compromise <laughs> for about 150 pages in the yeah. middle. Mm. Um, but so I saw you on your little memorandum of there, like assembling like a pros and cons list of this book. And I'd like to know what you think of the pros and cons. Yes. So um, I think some things that immediately jumped out to me as positives was that there was, I think there was a uh, courage, if that's the right word, to make the characters unlikable and at least to me, they especially the, the, the two leads, so Billy and Daisy, are mm. most of the book, like, they, they go from just being kind of irritating to hateful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't really think they they have much... They're not really redeemed in, in, in any way. And I, and I, I kind of like that. Like, because I, I do imagine that most people that made... That, uh, that, ma- that made sort of soft rock in the 70s... We're probably a bit up themselves, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just a bunch of cunts, really. Just, just, yeah, just a bunch of uh, idiots. And I think that that is kind of brought to life and reiterated and reiterated again in sort of everything they say and do. And yeah, I can get behind that because I have a pretty bleak view of humanity as well. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, what I think helps that is the fact that, and it sort of feeds into the, the these kind of deeply flawed characters is that um the relationships are quite complex Mm -hmm. um and even like the sort of the romantic relationship is uh i think unconventional yeah um and obviously as 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 we've said i don't really read much romantic generally generally if somebody in the books that i usually read if somebody has romantic feelings towards somebody else that's just because they're going to die in 50 pages (laughs) And you're kind of, um, and they're actually, you know, we do spoilers on this podcast. There is a death in this book, but I found it genuinely unexpected. Yeah. And I thought as well, the the way the way this is formatted, this, this book was sort of like doing the rounds and all my kind of book recommending channels for a long time. And I avoided it like the fucking plague mm-hmm. because of all the things I thought it was. And I was kind of right, but, and yet I really liked it anyway, because like the idea of like, 
like an oral history about a made up band is already an annoying idea. Mm-hmm. And and like having read extracts, I was kind of like, oh god, it's sort of like the manic, manic pixie dream rock star girl kind of thing and this constant reiterating of this person's beauty and mystery and I'm like oh do I really do I really need that and but I think what I admired most about it from like a purely technical sense was like the way that that format is used in a way that's completely engaging and sort of trips along mm-hmm. really really quickly and it does sort of burn past and how what, what strikes me as well on the second read through is how much it absolutely wouldn't work if it was like a straightforward novel about like two rock stars who fell in love but ultimately couldn't be together like because it is mm-hmm. kind of a Romeo and Juliet story and like this thing of like and you're totally right in that like they they suck as people <laughs> <laughs> they fucking suck like, <laughs> like Daisy is just she's so annoying and like yeah. the sort of like the sort of petulant child rock star thing of like and her, all of her anecdotes, and I've met people like this, people who like are a little bit famous or who used to be famous or whatever, they have this way of framing all of their anecdotes, even though they claim to be completely like self-aware mm-hmm. and have a 2020 vision of their own past and they've gotten sober and they do meditation now. It's like this thing where all of their anecdotes like end with them like swinging their handbag over <laughs> their shoulder and being like, yeah. well, it's my way or it's nothing, Billy. And yeah. then they walked out and got a hamburger. Well, you it's know? the older Alan Partridge thing that's like, Needless to say, I had the last laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And yeah. that's that's so, so true and so fitting because it's like... But it's like when it's five different people or six different people, seven, um, saying all at once, uh, well, needless to say, I had the last laugh. It becomes quite interesting and they're sort of competing narratives. Yeah. It is overused in the book, I think. Like the yeah. first couple of times, I'd say the first several times that... There was that thing where it's like, and that's how it was. Yeah. It wasn't like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah I was like, ha! And then, <laughs> after, what a gas! <laughs> and then, like, after like 50 times, I was like, <sighs> yeah, no, I, to- and I completely know what you mean as well because, like, the first time where it's like, um, when they land on the band name The Six and it's like six competing narratives of like who came up with the name. Yeah. One guy likes it because it sounded like The Sex. Karen likes it because because she said to somebody on the phone, oh, there's six of us, and then they thought it was called the six. It was like everyone doing their own apocryphal thing. Yeah. Which, well, the first time happens, it's so effective, and then after a while, you're like, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> Find a new idea. But it's interesting that you say that it wouldn't work without it being this kind of um, oral... What did we decide it was called? Oral, oral history. Or, oral history. Um, because I do also think that it being an oral history hinders it as literature. Okay, go on. Well, because there's no... There's um, there's no sort of active conflict. Everything is happening sort of in retrospect. There's no... Um, it's like, like a couple of times I was thinking like, shit, Daisy's going to die. And yeah. then I remembered, oh no, Daisy's telling me the fucking story. <laughs> Yeah, this is like a beyond the grave scenario. <laughs> Which, I mean, yeah. can work. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard. There you go. Yeah. Let's get, get as many sort of... Another great Sunset Strip sort of, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so there's that. There's also this, like, it's all... And I'm, this is going to seem more negative than, than I think it is, but it's all show. Oh, sorry, it's all it's all tell. Yeah. No show. Yeah. Yeah. Because and that and that is literally it's set up as the function of the entire narrative, isn't it? And like, mm-hmm. is that this is all tale and no show? I think there is like, where is my cup 
We have the book on. Oh, they're all here. They're all, they're all here. Our piles of books. Our piles of Daisy Jones. Um, and this is, like, it begins, <laughs> like, literally, like, it begins with an author's note, which is, of course, a fictional author's note. It's mm-hmm. not from Taylor Jenkins Reid. It's from the fictional author of this oral yeah. history, this compiler. And I've just edited with this. I love this kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> which is, I do love this kind of shit. It's like, okay, so it's, it begins with, this book is an attempt to piece together a clear portrait of how the renowned 1970s rock band, Daisy Jones and the Six, rose to fame, as well as what led to their abrupt and infamous split while on tour in Chicago on July 12th, 1975. Over the course of the last eight years, I've conducted individual interviews, blah, 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 blah. And she goes on to say that, you know, that there are competing narratives and different events will read differently to different people. And then she says, she ends with, the truth often lies unclaimed in the middle. Which I think is a really, like... I, from the beginning, I'm like, oh shit, I'm in. I am so in. Yeah. I love that kind of stuff. I love the sort of like the, cons- the the sort of construction of like who is the author of this text kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. That's something you touched upon in your uh, previous podcast around um, virgin suicide, mm. which I really responded to as well. Yeah, it's um, that thing to create kind of like like different levels of of of, uh, of fiction like russian dolls yeah and yeah. the thing is it's like this thing of like these that were, were it's telling you that this is a book filled with unreliable narrators but then you have that immediate thing of being like well who's this unreliable narrator that's yeah it's an interesting point actually because that was another thing that it's i think i kind of had it in my negatives column but mm-hmm. this idea of um authorial voice mm-hmm. um which there isn't really one right like, and i think I was thinking, trying to think about like what, what do I really respond to? What do I really love specifically about novels? Is the fact that somebody that, I, that I'm in somebody's hands, mm. and it's usually somebody that I trust or someone who I'm learning to trust. And I'm talking about the author, like necessarily. Like I know I trust Philip Roth to take me on a journey, mm-hmm. or or whatever. Even that journey is wanking in a cabin somewhere, thinking about well, Anne Frank. That's generally where the journey leads, and yeah. I'm comfortable there. I know, I like yeah. it. <laughs> I've visited many times. In fiction. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think, I guess, the nature of it being um, being this oral history means that, yeah, that you don't really feel any kind well there, there isn't one narrator there isn't one there isn't really an authorial voice is there no but like I think it is what as I said before what makes it like less of a fucking grind of like these two as we said these two people Billy and Daisy like da- I think of Daisy is like the the child of a model and an artist and mm-hmm. and Billy was this handsome sort of Mick Jagger type and he had it and they both had it and nobody knows what it is yeah but what I really responded to then was that like there is a sort of a high velocity romance creative collaboration going on with these two characters. But then there's these like tiny other relationships happening mm. that feel mm. really important and really flesh the book out. Like this, um, this is sort of like a mirror romance happening mm. with Karen, who's the keyboardist and Graham. Graham. <laughs> Graham. Yeah. <laughs> With Graham. Graham. <laughs> I always forget that when you're reading an American book and someone's called Graham, they're it's called Graham. Graham. <laughs> Which sounds stupid, but it's actually better than fucking Graham. Graham. 
Graham. Graham. Graham. Like a mining town. (laughs) (laughs) Graham, you spilt beans all over the floor. Graham. Me and Graham are in love. Yeah, it's like Karen Karen and Graham are are having this sort of relationship, like sort of threaded throughout. And that feels like a much more compelling love story because they're too much more low-key characters. Mm, Yeah. And they're sort of having a secret romance. It's not even really secret, but it's more secret because nobody really gives a fuck about them because they're not the main characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's all these kind of stories about them sort of like in Laurel Canyon just taking shrooms and having a great time together. Yeah, I love that shit. I love that shit. Yeah. And I would say more of that, but actually, no, that's the right amount. It's got this the right, right amount. amount. Yeah, <laughs> a yeah. good right amount of yeah. Karen and Graham. Um, yeah. Well, the whole thing, that's... that's uh, yeah, a big... One big plus for me is that it does feel real. Like, mm. to oh, a yeah. scary degree. Like, literally, like... Six times I went to YouTube or Spotify to see yeah. and try and listen to this song that they're talking about. And then yeah. again, remembering, oh, some fucker oh. made it up. <laughs> some woman made it up. <laughs> and, and, and because it is that thing where it's like that lovely thing that everyone loves, even if it is corny, that thing, that, the sort of Forrest Gump effect, right? Of yeah. like, oh, we're going to mesh in pretend characters with real characters. I can't get Can- enough <laughs> of it. So good. <laughs> Why is it so good? I don't know, but my God. Yeah. My God, I love it. Like even I don't know, and why? So it just tickles a part of my brain that is so childish mm-hmm. and stupid. Yeah. It, it, especially when at the very beginning, there's this bit where um, it's like the concierge of like the Marriott that's like on Sunset Strip in the 70s. They interview him to see if he remembers the bands coming through and he sort of talks about meeting Daisy and about meeting other people. Yeah. I was like, yeah. Yeah. Because like, that it exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, Robert Plant was here and I was like, oh, start wanking now. <laughs> it's so good. I'm like, if I, I read somewhere that Taylor Jenkins Reid who, like, who, as a career career author, fascinates me anyway because she's somebody who started with very conventional romance and has pivoted in the last few years unlike her fifth and sixth books to doing these kind of novels like her kind of twin novel to this is called um the seven husbands of evelyn hugo which is kind of it was very very it's like an elizabeth taylor story version of this it's not an oral history but it has a kind of like oh i'm gonna we're gonna present you with a fictional entertainment history that feels close enough to something real that you believe it kind of thing Mm -hmm. But so she, so I'm interested in her. But apparently, her research for this was just ordering every fucking copy of Rolling Stone off eBay in like big chunks mm-hmm. from that period. Yeah, which sounds fun. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually, I think I, I read that or saw that video as well. And she also mentions that uh, an, another major influence on her was uh, the biography of Bruce Springsteen, which you've definitely read. Which, of course, I read and it came <laughs> out. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you something about it. I didn't love it. Oh, no. But I can absolutely see the influence of it on the character of Billy, who is a fucking drag. Yeah. He is a drag. He is a drag. Yeah. Um, but I, and I... But... So the influence of the Bruce Springsteen biography uh, is, is thus. I was reading the Bruce Springsteen biography, mm-hmm. and I was getting along with it pretty well. I mean... What was it called? Was it called, like, The Boss Rides a Horse or something? I, mean, I think it was called Born to Run. <laughs> oh, my God, of course. There's a, I love Bruce Springsteen, but that man loves that his name is The Boss. Oh, my God. Well, who wouldn't? I mean, Wait, Caroline, if they, were call, if they were going around calling you The Boss, so, oh, The Boss is coming. The, the boss, boss is coming to brunch. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, but no, I, oh, I, that's I, the boss walking her dog. Oh, she's picking up its shit. <laughs> I retract <laughs> that. I do not hold Rich Springsteen accountable for loving being called the boss. Because yeah. I too would love to be called the boss. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reading the Bruce Springsteen autobiography and I'm getting along with it pretty well. He's writing some great songs uh, that I also love. It's fantastic. And um, he's really starting to enjoy. And him and the whole East Street Band are really starting to enjoy their fame. Mm-hmm. And it comes at this point in the book where he writes, You know, uh, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> a lot of people in this industry, they have a problem with drugs and alcohol. Not me, though. <laughs> and at that stage, I had like 400 pages of this fucking thing left and I basically tossed it across the room. Was it because you hated that Bruce Springsteen was lying to you or you hated that Bruce Springsteen's a square? No, it's that. It's, it's, it's like, I'm reading a rock and roll biography and you've just telegraphed on page 80 of 560 that you had no substance abuse problems at any point. Like, yeah. what the fuck is the rest of the book going to yeah. be filled with? So it's like, either oh. you're lying and you think I'm a child, or yeah. you're a child. <laughs> you <laughs> went through that long a career and yeah. you never had a substance abuse problem? 500 pages of like, oh, I went from strength to strength. And this is, I've gone now real like Southern Baptist now with Bruce Springsteen, who was born in New, New Jersey. Jersey. Famously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But he's like, oh yeah, like it, we just went from strength to strength. Everything was great, and I played the Super Bowl, and uh, I love my wife and love my kids, and that's me. That's <laughs> all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah Needless to say, I had the last laugh. <laughs> <laughs> then he said to someone, "Well, it's my song, or it's no one." And he swung <laughs> his hand back over his shoulder, and he walked out. Um, I uh, very enjoyed that. Yeah, but <laughs> visit from the boss. <laughs> but that's Billy. Yeah. Yeah. Except. 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 Billy has a dark side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that comes uh, that that comes to the fore at certain points. There's like a, a great scene towards the end. So so, I assume people who are listening to this would have read the yeah, book. Yeah, mostly. Yeah. Okay, so Billy's like a recovering alcoholic and and coke and heroin addict, mm-hmm. and he sort of goes back and forth throughout the book. Uh, well, he's basically struggling with his sobriety for the whole time. And towards the very end of the book, he actually has a drink. It's a fucking great scene. It's like, the, probably my, uh, my... No, my it's my second favourite in the scene, after the one that I'm going to talk about now. Mm-hmm. Um, which is where... Uh, da- he, he goes to pick up Daisy from a party at her house, and she's, like, completely fucked up on coke and pills and alcohol and things like that, and she's in this stunning dress and like floating in a swimming pool um and there's this uh and there's this great uh description of her from her like best friend stroke minder kind yeah, of Simone who's like a detector. disco star yeah and the the quote is something like uh she's going to be the girl bleeding in a beautiful dress until it kills her mm. Which is just a, fan, a, a fantastic it's, line. It feels like something that I think anyone who's ever dabbled in, any boy especially, I think, who's ever dabbled in teenage poetry or sort of emo songwriting has a written huge, a version of that yeah. line at some point. And You've got about six million songs that are some version of yeah, that. Yeah, basically. Some, some word salad of that statement. Absolutely. <laughs> but while Simone is thinking that, uh, Billy is thinking... It, it, it is watching from the sidelines and thinking something else. Shall I read a passage? Oh, please do. I would love that. So I'm going to jump around like uh, 
these two pages, 181 and 182, for anyone reading along. Mm. Um, So it starts with him just describing being at the party, and he just says, There was a guy next to me, some guy I would have told you was an old geezer, except he was probably only 40. I could smell the whiskey in his glass, that smoky, antiseptic scent. It's always been the smell for me. The smell of tequila, the smell of beer, even coke. The smell of anything of it. It takes me right back to those moments when the night is just starting, when you know you're going to get into trouble. It feels so good, the beginning. And then he goes on to say as he's watching Daisy, who, as we've said, is drenched in this beautiful dress. She's stepped in broken glass and mm. there's blood dripping into the pool. And, it's and all she around. never wears shoes. Yeah, it's a, and she's a complete mess. And Simone says that she's always going to be that girl bleeding in the beautiful dress until it kills her. And literally the very next line is Billy's. And it just says, I couldn't stay. I couldn't stay because when I looked at Daisy, wet and bleeding and out of it, and half near falling down, I did not think... Thank God I stopped using. I thought, she knows how to have fun. It's very good. And late, just it's, the most, it's the most, like, telling piece of, like... This character speaks hundreds of lines of dialogue in this book, and it's the most, like, oh, that's who he is. Yeah. It's that moment. And he kind of crystallises it on the next page, where he just says, my instinct said to run towards chaos. Mm-hmm. And I think that's... That's it. I think it's like, whenever you... So much of when we talk about when we talk about people who have like substance abuse issues and, and things like that, it's like you see them destroying their lives, and you go, "Oh my god, why? Why would you?" Still, I would simply not destroy my why, life. Why would you still do it? And he's like, "That's the point." Yeah. Like it's, um, and there's a line that's something like this in the book, which is like, "Some people chase nightmares, like others chase dreams," and I think. Yeah, I think it's just, it's very true and very realistic and very believable that the uh, the compulsion to, to do these things and the self-destructive impulse is that and it is to create chaos in your life for whatever reason. I think maybe because you feel like you lack... You lack meaning or you lack... I, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't... I'm not a psychologist. And I feel this way every single time I see, like, any story of, like, you know, somebody going off the edge or going crazy mm-hmm. and, de- and like, destroying their lives. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be related to drugs or anything. I'm just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. No, yeah, you know, it's yeah. like... And I feel like like a relatively, I'd say, very sort of stable life myself I've had the same job for 10 years mm. I've, you know all, all this stuff deliberately but like I just kind of my f- definitely my fantasy is about burning it down what is that do you think I think because I think that is like a little seed that lives in people that I know but who aren't me and I'm constantly trying to understand I don't know I think it's it's definitely related to a thing that you know I don't know I I, I think I th- I assume that everyone had this, but you can tell me otherwise. Um, that thing of it's a, it's it's actually become a cliche now, but going towards the edge of the cliff mm. and being like jump, yeah, like like you just want yeah. to, jump. like I always had that. Like I used to just, I once, I always relate it back to this memory I had when I was a kid uh, when we were just driving at like a hundred miles an hour down the motorway, and I was in the back of my 
well, my whole family in a car driving back to my grandparents or something. And I just like opened the door. Yeah, just, just to see. <laughs> just to see what would happen. All right, I knew it was going to be bad. Yeah. That was the thing. And you know, you remember those things where you like do things and you know this is going to be, this is going to be bad. Mm. I think it's just a bit of that. And it's like you want badness. You want to invite chaos and badness yeah. into your life. And when she writes about that in the book, mm. it feels not just like real and not just insightful, but like really worthwhile like yeah. that, those were the points where I was like I'm glad I'm reading this like I'm getting some insight into myself wow yeah and I'm getting some insight into people in general which relates back to I think to what we were talking about about um how I choose books generally and why I generally avoid commercial I don't want to say commercial women's fiction commercial fiction yeah I no, think, fair enough generally is because to me if I'm going to spend like a week or two weeks reading a book at the end of it I want it to have. Uh, I, I want it to have contributed to my big project, which is your life. My my life. My understanding of myself and why I do these things that I do, and why I've made the choices that I've made, and why and what I'm going to do about it, and how I'm going to become better over time. And I all. I think I felt I had this perception that a lot of commercial women's fiction was kind of about like uh, self empowerment or sort of affirmation. Mm. And I don't really have much time for affirmation yeah. because I think most people actually re- need to really look at themselves and get better. I don't. I don't think people are. I generally. I mean, and I know maybe I'm completely wrong. Most people, I don't think they are fine as they are <laughs> at all. Wow. I think. I think people have yeah. massive flaws that they could work on if they were critical of them. Really, and I don't mean critical about sort of mm. superficial things. I think, but I think you're you're quite um, you reject a sort of any sense of coziness in art because like because um, I think and a lot of people subscribe to this this thing of like that that work should always be challenging you or making you ask questions of yourself and ask and asking you to get better. And I do think that women's commercial fiction is absolutely capable of doing that. The same as any other genre, the same as fantasy does, the same as sci-fi does, or whatever. It's just it tends to be wrapped in different packaging. Mm. Um, but I do think you have sort of given me an insight there because I think I've, I've said a lot on this podcast, um, you know, why why won't, not just why don't, but why won't men read these books? Like, I, I always use the example of, like, Jilly Cooper's Riders as being a book that is, like, it's a David and Goliath story about two men, like, fighting it out through the international show jumping circuit. It couldn't be more masculine. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't think I could find a man in a million who's read it, you know? Yeah. Um, but maybe it is this thing of like, we are all just reading to improve this great project that is our lives. Mm-hmm. And if if it's couched in this kind of female desire thing, like what are men going to get from that? You know, maybe, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe that, that is a more charitable reading. Um, because I've just been calling it misogyny. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine too. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. 
This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I really loved the the bits in or when like Daisy sort of like making it as a bit of like a professional it girl she's kind of everybody's girlfriend she she never wears shoes which is like one of these details that feel like to go back to the scene that you just read from that feels quite like practiced and annoying when it first comes up because Daisy is sort of practiced and annoying mm-hmm. and then when you realize when she sort of like well, I, it occurs to me rereading that scene and rehearing it from you. She's she's not right. She's stepped in glass. She's sort of broken blood everywhere. Where it's like, oh, this character quirk has become your character fault, kind of thing. It's sort yeah. of a visual representation of that. Like she's literally not wearing shoes <laughs> yeah. in any in any spiritual or emotional sense. Um, but there's this bit where. There's this bit where uh, Daisy has been signed to like a label because uh, based on the strength of like two performances of Son of a Preacher Man <laughs> and uh, the fact that she's in magazines a lot and they want her to be sort of the next Olivia Newton-John and they want her to like cover existing songs in their catalogue and she sort of like walks out, is completely entitled about the whole thing, says she wants to perform her songs, has no musical training or mm-hmm. chops or credibility whatsoever. And there's this moment where one of the characters, is um, the manager, Teddy, who's um interesting character in the book, but says to her, uh, a person who requires the ideal conditions to make art is not an artist. They are an asshole. I underlined it like very hard, like yeah. dig through the paper hard. <laughs> I feel yeah. like I need to write it down somewhere public. But yeah, I, it could I, be like your live, laugh, love. <laughs> it, could, it really could be. And I, I really liked the the whole thing of of people making art in this book and it being this combination of being quite a romantic thing that's like oh we were all in the studio taking drugs and then someone came up with a riff and then like mixed with the sort of the hard graft of coming up with things of doing stuff of doing the work of working all night and then also of like having to work with people who have their own vision Mm, I think that's the best stuff in the book yeah I really really do Um, all of the stuff and I love how in depth it is um and how much time is spent on it. The creation of... Uh, the, 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 the Like, right down to, like, the sequencing of, of songs on the album. Yeah. Which is something I'm really into, like... I don't know. Like, 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 like the whole... Like, you can't offend me more than telling me that you listen to one of my favourite albums on Shuffle. <laughs> it's like... You... Like, like what are yeah. you going to do? You're going to watch, like, the last scene of Goodfellas first? And then you're going to watch, like, the bit where Karen does the... Th- you, know, you know, it's like... <laughs> That's crazy to me that people would listen to albums on shuffle. Yeah. Um, I think sequencing is so important. And I'm really glad that Billy and Taylor <laughs> feel the same. <laughs> yeah, so, but, so I, did, I did feel like I wasn't in the presence of someone who was a tourist in this world. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's clear that the writer cares deeply about what uh, what she's writing about and and it cares about the stuff that is actually really interesting about it it's this yeah. is not just the mu- the like 70s music scene isn't just a backdrop for a romance completely no yeah. like 
the, if anything, the romance is secondary. That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, and like, and and because this book has been sort of had this huge life as like this big sun lounger book, you would think that it would be a kind of a bit of a like a seventies shag carpet fuck fest, right? But it's yeah. actually not. It's so technical. It's so yeah. um, niche and detailed, and like spends a lot of time on like songs we're never gonna fucking hear. Well, she, she writes the whole album she at the back the of the book. Because it, because that's what it's really about. I almost feel like I, I, I almost feel like the romance is the is the kind of afterthought. It's like, oh, yeah. I'm writing this sun lounger book. There, there better be some fucking in it. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. And like, I think, and the, and just the whole thing of we hear we've we've heard so many different times about great bands who get together and they split up, and it's always these things like, oh well, you know. Paul wanted to write the songs the same as John or George did or I don't know you're much more a Beatles person than I am it's always something that to people from the outside feels eminently solvable mm. and then when the when the when the the band who are now in their 70s go yeah well he wanted to do this and I want to do this and so we just didn't talk for three years if you're like what like you, you had a fucking number one album what are you talking about but this has like such a realistic you're like oh that's how it happens mm. the slow building tension especially from the kind of periphery band members like Eddie and Warren who are like no they're not the main characters and mm. are both comfortable and not comfortable with it. Like there's this bit where they talk about their big gig where they bring on Daisy for the first time and it's their first sort of like assemblage Mm -hmm. as this new unit. And it's like, oh, you know, and Billy takes the acoustic guitar away from Eddie and then they sit on the stage and they're singing into the same mic and it's very Mm -hmm. Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga and everyone loves it. And it's this iconic moment in music history. Mm -hmm. And Eddie, meanwhile, is like, 50 years later, so like, he took my guitar. <laughs> yeah. He didn't ask, he took it, and then he didn't give it back to me, and I had to pack up my own stuff. What kind of shit is that? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, really? I was like, yeah, Eddie, what kind of shit is that? <laughs> like, I thought that made, like, it really peeled back this layer of like, oh, look, these kind of, mm-hmm. the beautiful people whose foreheads are almost touching as they sing in the same mic, and it really peels back to like, well, what does the guitar player think? What does the bass player think? You know? Yeah. Because these are the people we don't hear from in, mm-hmm. in musical biopics and stuff. Yeah. And I think what, spending time, especially though with Billy and Daisy, writing this... Because you do hear in those old sort of like VH1 behind the music type things, like, oh, he wanted this and she wanted that and that's yeah. why we didn't speak forever yeah. and that's why the band broke up. But because you also get their personal lives in this book, you kind of see what the creation of this art means to them which yeah. is very different uh, which is very different yes that's for really really good yeah so for daisy being able to write her own uh, being able to write her own songs is really about like as it sets up right at the beginning you know she's she she she's um she's always being val- she she is highly valued mm. but on other people's terms mm. because it's like oh cuz she's beautiful or she's you know talented or you know she's Rich, white, and gorgeous, you yeah, know, and, yeah. all, and all the all these things, and obviously she she's self she needs to she's she she it's all for her it's all about being valued on uh, valued on her own terms, mm. whereas Billy needs to um, Billy's addiction is his uh, is his wife and his kids as he just replaces one. 
That's so one I thing with the other. It, yeah. And this is and and him writing those songs about his wife over and over again, even though everyone else is so bored of them. That's like him going to you know that's like him going to. AA. That's like him going through yeah. his um, go, going through his rituals and his routines to stay sober. Like I, I, that's that's at least how I read it. And so this is literally. So though they're talking, they're arguing over how a song should be. They're really arguing over. Um, they're really arguing over. It's like I. I have to do this to, for either my self-actualization yeah. or I have to do this to fucking keep my life together. Like that's kind of I think built into. Like in the subtext of the kind of the writing of each song, and that's why I think there is kind of drama there, and it does feel real. And I'm sure that is realistic to the way that people really. Well, sorry, I I kind of know just from yeah, writing you, you, things. You it's like, like write collaboratively all the time. So you you like you work in your day job in advertising. You have a creative partner, and you yeah. also are a screenwriter where you have a creative partner. Yeah. Like you and I have written stuff together in the past, and like you are a very like you your life is these relationships. Well, it is, and it's like. When you're screaming about sort of where, it, I mean, uh, hopefully you're not screaming. Anymore, but it's like when you're arguing or storming out of a room or acting completely out of character about sort of where a word should be or what something should be. And, you know, of course, it's never about that. It's because of you know this sounds so pat, but it's like of what that represents. It's like yeah. why do I need to have my way on this thing? Yeah, yeah, Comple- totally. And I think as well. That is the thing of like this album that goes on to be this smash hit, this album Aurora, and it means such different things to both of them, as you just outlined. It is this thing as well where there are two people in a room creating this thing together that means entirely separate things to them and have entirely different iterations on what these words mean and who they mean what to. And they also have this thing of like this added layer of drama where it's... um. Daisy, but it's, I say drama, but it's completely natural drama of Daisy represents the rock and roll lifestyle that Billy feels like he possibly should be leading, but knows he can't lead because, mm-hmm. as you say, he's addicted to his wife. And kids. <laughs> <laughs> Only you would phrase it that way. You're addicted to your wife. <laughs> and there's this thing of like, they, like when he just gets out of rehab and and he's trying to be like the good man, and there's this great part where like he. And it's he's it's sort of this thing where he's holding it over his own head for the rest of his life. Really, is he was so fucked up when his first child Julia was born that he missed her birth and then had to go to rehab and didn't meet her until she was two months old. Mm-hmm. Which it's like it's a, it's a fucking it's a huge thing for us to find out about our romantic hero because it's like very hard to come back from that. Mm. Um, and then it's this note that his wife Camilla gives him, which is you have until. November 30th to be the best man for the rest of your life or something and it's this idea that someone can get sober for someone else mm-hmm. which I don't know if that's real do you think it is? Um, I think it's it's what someone else represents I think maybe yeah more I think some I think a vision of a of a better life or a better way of being can be crystallized in one person. Uh, like if you know, yes, what I, no, it's very that. Yeah. Know what I mean? So I think he sees in, isn't it? Camilla. Camilla. I was called Camilla. Um, Camilla. Oh, maybe it is. I don't know. I don't We're know. all just reading. Yeah. <laughs> We're all just readers floating in infinite space on a <laughs> planet that's going to heading to oblivion. Um, <laughs> Camilla. Or Camille. Or Camille. Your reading is as valid as mine. Camilla. (laughs) 
Camila is the face of his alternative life. Mm. So I think that's it. I, I don't think she is as powerful as he makes her. Yes. He, it, that's, so that's why it's like, where it's like, oh, I love my wife so much. It's like, don't fuck your wife. Then. I know. <laughs> I know. And you're really there with the rest of the band being like, why would you go and fuck your wife somewhere? <laughs> leave us all alone. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not, it's not actually about her, is it? It's about what she, she also she, she's the opposite of oblivion, you know, dis, disrepute, disrepair, death, etc., etc., etc. So it's more just like, uh, she's, yeah, and there's one thing we haven't touched on as well, which is touched on several times in the book, which is, and again, maybe it's a little bit of a cliche, but Billy and his brother have like a deadbeat dad. Oh, yeah. yeah really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so... See, as a male reader, I think that would that you would zero in on that much more than oh, I Oh, no, no, totally. That's like a freaking... Numero uno, yeah. big theme on campus. Yeah. Where I'll just like flick over and... I see like, dad, oh, yeah. I have to immediately squeeze a tear back into my duct. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's yeah. got a dad. No, no, I was like, like dad. Now we're starting. Oh, dad's, dad's here. <laughs> Come on, dad. <laughs> yes, yes, and he, they've dead be dad, and who they see again at this wedding they play, mm. and Camila <laughs> is at the same wedding. Yeah. Yes, I didn't remember that bit. Yeah, well, it's... but dad. <laughs> you said you had some stuff to say about seventies rock. In the book. Well, yes, I do, Caroline. <laughs> um, 70s rock, not the best era for rock. Do you I, not think so? I would say. I think, okay, so I have a kind of, I wouldn't call it a theory because I've only sort of created it for the purposes of this podcast. But um, all my theories are for this podcast. You can basically judge where rock music is at by where Bob Dylan is at at that time. So, for example... I love this. Go on. 60s. 19, 19, so, 1965. I mean, I mean, you don't have to make a very strong argument to say that's the best, the greatest year for rock and roll. Whatever. That's the kind of... That's the banner year for, for rock and roll. That's... I don't want to fuck this up now and sort of say something's wrong. But it's around that time that you're getting the, your Sergeant Peppers mm-hmm. and everything. And obviously... And Bob Dylan has shared the kind of uh, original vagabond... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, look and feel, and he sort of uh, bursts out onto new uh, onto the Newport uh, fest- uh, folk festival stage with the uh, the glasses and the big hair and the leather jacket sure, and, sure. The, and the uh, and, I remember and the, the scene from Walkhart. Yes, yes, we all do. Um, and so that's when it's at its best. And then in the seventies, he is a. So he has this motorcycle accident in night, like the le- in, in the late sixties, and he basically goes into hiding and just becomes a dad with a beard mm-hmm. and some little. And John Lennon did a similar thing, right? He he hid and was a dad with a beard for a while. Yeah, I mean, I hate John Lennon. I hate him when he's good. I hate him when he's bad. I hate John Lennon. Wow. And I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> wow. This ain't about John Lennon. No, this is about Bob Dylan. <laughs> I ain't talking about motherfucking John Lennon. <laughs> Other man in music. Yeah. They're all um, into. Yeah. He's got the glasses. He's got the beard. He's wearing fucking jackets with patches on the sleeves. And that is what the 70s 
rock scene is. It's a bit too comfortable. Mm. It's a bit too. It, it, it's like they may be having crazy a crazy time, uh, sort of behind the scenes. But I think I think the music becomes kind of a little bit. Uh, yeah, it it, it it it's not dangerous anymore. Mm. And I listen to the album Rumours in preparation for this. Podcast. Yes, I think Fleetwood Mac is definitely the closest thing to this, right? Yeah. It's the most obvious yeah. parallel. I don't like it. You don't like Rumours? No, for that exact reason. I'm just like, I don't feel, even though I know all the stories behind it, I, don't, I feel like yeah. there's nothing at stake in this music. And the fact that this is the music that these guys are writing, mm. like, again, that was something that was working against me. It was like, you're arguing over this shit, but I know you're just going to make some pop rock track that I would never listen to. Wow. Okay, so are you on like, the same side as like the bass player and the drummer who are basically like, they the book being like, we thought we were a rock band. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and then no. and, like the, when they get Daisy on and when Karen starts doing more keys, they're like, hey, hey guys, <laughs> yeah. we yeah. signed up to be in a rock band. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's exactly it. But my Dylan theory, by the way, which I'm sort of developing as I'm speaking, mm. it really works. Because <laughs> if you look at the 80s Dylan, he's kind of a bit booze-bloated. He's got an earring in yeah. that doesn't really suit him at all. He's got the lines under his eyes, and he's got a kind of leather jacket, and it's got studs on it. And it's like, this is like, yeah, this is just this, like, bloated plastic wreck of rock and roll. And then he comes back. This is now a Dylan podcast. <laughs> I'm taking over. <laughs> a man who I know almost nothing about, okay. but I love being educated. Yeah. Oh, and anyway, where he comes back in the 90s and he does this kind of like slightly grungy blues rock thing, which really represents where rock was going. And it's all good. And it gets back to its roots for a little and bit. And so what, what, what's Bob Dylan doing right now? Bob Dylan doing right now. He released an album. Uh, he released an album about six months ago. It was fantastic. It's basically his farewell album. It's got some lines in it that you would go absolutely mad for, just as someone who likes kind of the legend of writers and of creators and things like that. And somebody at 80 looking back on their life. In fact, we we don't have to keep this in, but I'm just (laughs) going to... I'm just going to tell you. Okay. So, the last proper track on the album, there's like a bonus track that's... 17 minutes long of course it is but the last verse of the last track on the album he just goes when I was 12 years old they put me in a suit forced me to marry a prostitute (laughs) and that's the music industry isn't it is that what that is and then he's like (laughs) that's my story but not where it ends she's still cute and we're still friends Oh, I do like that. Yeah. And I just yeah. like... You know what? You started and I hated it, but now I like yeah. it. Weird how that happened. Yeah, I know. And every single time I hear it, and I've heard it like a thousand times now, I just like... Argh. Oh, wow. <laughs> because he's singing like his, la- that, that's like his last message to the thing. It's like, you know, and, I, and it's like... She's still cute. And we're, we're still, still friends. friends. <gasps> Music, right? <laughs> I'm 80 years old, but wow. I'm putting out one final album and this is how I feel about it and you're listening to it. Wow. That's my story, but not where it ends. She's still cute, and we're still friends. That is really good. Yeah. Well, Bob Dylan, quite good. Bob Dylan, turns out, a lot of potential. Yeah, okay. Anyway. A lot of potential in that old, old man. Yeah. Um, What did you think about the twist? I thought it was lame and unearned. (laughs) 
identify what the twist was for our readers. Okay, so if you're referring to the same twist that I think you are, if you if one yeah. could even call it a twist, yeah. it's like the author who has not been remotely present throughout the entire narrative, mm-hmm. quote-unquote narrative, uh, suddenly reveals herself to be the daughter of Billy and Camille. Yes, Julia, who is um, the, the baby whose birth he missed to be in rehab, yes? Yes, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, um, that's not a twist because that character didn't exist in the... In, in the novel. Uh, maybe, it's not a twist, it is a stunt. It's a stunt, but it's just like a stunt where everyone's looking in the other direction. It's yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> Mum! Dad, look at me! <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, it's like we're all sitting o- over here like... Yeah, we're all thinking about Aurora and what it meant to us. Yeah, watching somebody else and it's like, I forgot you even exist. I didn't even know you exist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, it, she... she Terry can Reeves does a similar thing in um in that that other kind of book Seven Husbands of Evan and Hugo mm-hmm. of sort of revealing who the author is and what their place is in this narrative and I think it is really interesting and admirable and like I think I think the purpose of doing something like that this sort of like third act reveal of like and you know. It was it was the the author twisting the idea of this author. It only works if you're, and all and this is my big theory of novels, is novels only work when you go into something with a big question and you come back out with a hundred little questions. And I think novels are only successful when that happens and when you can feel that and someone has gone really 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 deep into something and they have so much more questions than they thought they were going to have mm-hmm. and i think when that's why issues the novels don't work for anyone because it's like oh well this person went into it knowing exactly what they thought mm. um, yeah, that's great whereas so revealing that julia is um, the kind of author would have been really interesting and exciting if on a reread you could see Oh, the placement of these quotes, the selection of these things, the the omission of material makes it make total sense and gives it a complete new layer. I think you're so right. That we saw that Julia was the writer the whole time. It's, like, it's an answer to a question that no one was asking. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. and I, I I appreciate it for its narrative neatness, but I think but having so I read this you know maybe seven months ago and now I've reread it quickly today hoping to find an extra layer of sort of Julianness mm-hmm. in it. And it's just kind of not there. Oh, and also, it wouldn't be right for it to be there because those, you know, these rock and roll oral histories never have a face behind them. It's Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like nobody cares who's making VH1 behind the music. I mean, yeah. even when it's like like the Rolling Thunder review, which is the, the movie for the Bob... Back to Bob. Uh, the Bob Dylan movie for Netflix that Martin Scorsese did. Even Martin Scorsese is not present mm. or relevant in that film at all. So yeah. it's like, it's not a thing. Yeah, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. <laughs> Somebody be like, oh shit, and the person behind the camera the whole yeah. time was... I'm trying to think any place that's been effective. Or whether someone's tried it somewhere before and... In terms of what? Something terms revealing of who relieving the, the author. Is. It's kind of very... Oh my God, do you remember that... Horrible adaptation of The Great Gatsby. 
I try not to, but I still can. I can still see it. <laughs> I think you and I saw it together I, in, in the Rio in Dalton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah we yeah. did. It was a big. It was a big event for us. Yeah, that motherfucker was like eight years ago. Seven yeah, years ago, yeah. It was a while ago, and um, there's this bit where like Toby Maguire's Nick Carraway character is in an asylum, and he's like talking to his therapist, and he's sort of like, and then he he has his like his manuscript thing, and then he goes Gatsby, and then he like goes. Adds the great. And you're like, oh no! No, you no. didn't. <laughs> Please don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, awful, awful, and bad. It's a, it's a real kind of um, idea as like uncanny valley, isn't it? It's like, yeah. Oh, it's just not good when it happens. No, I actually thought this was. Uh, I completely. I must have blanked it from my memory. I'm glad you brought it up because I thought that this was actually one of the worst. Uh, examples of that that I've yeah oh I feel bad now see no because I wouldn't have even mentioned that oh uh, yeah I would I I'm <sighs> because it's just the it's the epitome of an unearned thing like you thought you could get away with sort of making yeah. us go ooh yeah I'm not gonna go ooh about something I wasn't going ah about earlier <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think the purpose of it in terms of like um and this is where I think. We were saying earlier on about how it's amazing that this was like a, a big Sunlander book because it's so technical. It's so like nuanced and detailed about the creation of art, the creation of mm. music, musicality in a way that should not play with a sort of a mainstream holiday audience, yeah. right? But I think the place where you see like, oh, this is a Sunlander book is the purpose of Julia being the compiler of this oral history is that it's revealed that Camille is, Camilla is um, dead, yeah. And died shortly after these interviews were taken. And there's a sort of like note from Camilla at the end being like, you know, your father should give Daisy Jones a call. And we're supposed to sort of believe that like these two sort of 70 year olds who now have lived entirely different lives mm. for many years and really only spent three years together in the 70s are supposed to now like look each other up and fall in love and like open a ranch together. You know, it's yeah, just it's... a bit... I can see how it works for an audience who is not me. Yeah. And there is also... Actually, it's interesting you brought that up because there's another thing where it's like... Because as you say, it gets so much right and is so clearly um, committed to this idea of the legend and the mythology of music mm. creation and, art, and the creation of art. I struggle to believe that a band that put out two albums and one of them was a hit mm-hmm. and then broke up would ever be would, would, people would still give a give a shit about. I mean, people still give a shit about the Libertines. So, yeah, but the Libertines weren't in the weren't yeah. thirty years ago, forty yeah. years ago. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. But it's just like there are plenty of bands out there who had like a hit album. Yeah. Like who listens to like Credence Clearwater? Lots of people. Okay, well, yeah. fuck me, right? <laughs> I'll, I'll shove that one up my ass. <laughs> Um, I remember when I was researching this, I looked at the Goodreads reviews for this, which are mostly extremely positive, but there was one 
one star review. I love those one <laughs> flag away oh, things. I look for them. I look for them. What's the who had the most shit to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. And it's such a, a one star review is so much better than like a two star review because a two star review is like oh, I had some serious problems with this narrative, mm. but a one star review is like I barely engaged at all, but I'm mad. <laughs> it's yeah. like just a man honking his horn. <laughs> 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 it means just slamming yeah. his fist down. And he said, um, I assume it was a he. It was. I don't understand why this book needed to be written when there are so many existing bands with more interesting histories. It's a fair point. <laughs> it's like you're. It's like he's an idiot, but it's a fair point. It's. A, it's, a, it's. But I think we may have kind of got sort of got to the bottom of of, of like that when we talk about um when we were speaking earlier about them bringing different things into the writing room. I think mm. that that's where it starts to be really interesting because it starts to become about the different ways people use art and the and the creation of art mm. to to vo- to 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 you know sort out their own personal demons and their own things that that, that they need to do and what happens when that kind of thing collides when someone's journey collide when one person's journey collides with another yeah yeah you're totally right which yeah. I, and I don't and I don't think you could get that any other way Really? Yeah, because I don't think you could get this from a musical documentary about an existing figure kind of thing because nobody has this level of clarity. I well, think. and they wouldn't reveal that shit. It's yeah, like, that's yeah. that's where it like breaks that's with true. reality because because I mean I don't know why I'm picking on him. Tom Petty's not going to reveal. <laughs> he was making music you at leave that time. Tom alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tom Petty's not going to reveal what was going on with his wife on a fucking VH1. That, no, you're, yeah. you're so right. That is exactly where it, 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 it captures a reality in a way that only fantasy can. Mm-hmm. Where it's, um, you're right. Yeah, there is no living rock star who's gonna just be sounding off about how they had this like unbelievable sexual chemistry, mm-hmm. but that was totally unfulfilled with their nightmare of a lead singer. You know, it's mm-hmm. just not gonna happen. But yeah, it's this is something we've said quite a few times in this podcast now. But it's like. Daisy and the Jones. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think that is what it's called. Let's not check. <laughs> Daisy and the Jones. Daisy Jones and the Six. Is Before not... she joined, and it was just the Jones. <laughs> like I mean, <laughs> just, you know, that's why we knew we had to have her in the band. <laughs> yeah. um, Daisy Jones and the Six are not a real rock band. But what they what they tell us about real rock bands is real. I <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Very well put. Very well summarized. Thank you. It took me a few goes. Yeah. But I got there. Great. So, this has been sentimental garbage. Is I'm Caroline O'Donoghue. Like natural end. Yes. Yeah, you go. You you do it. Okay. I'm Caroline Donahue. I'm a writer, podcaster, and I'm the grit that exists in the tray of. A toaster that you really should have replaced six months ago. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. is it, did, I get, did I get it right? Yeah. You did. That is exactly how the order I like that to go. Thank okay, you. Cool. Um, I, I, my name is Tom McInnes. I'm extremely grateful to be asked on this podcast despite having no achievements to speak of. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. Goodbye. <laughs>
has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at ZaraLine, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaraLineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com